Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast, Do Not Adjust Your Sets. That was Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols because, yes, I've got Glenn Matlock. Yeah, it's fantastic to speak to Glenn going back into the 70s with the Sex Pistols, to the Rich Kids and his solo and side projects. Got a great UK tour coming up and, um, yeah, so we'll be hearing loads of tracks from Glenn's career and hearing about his forthcoming tour. So, um, yeah, let's do it. Glenn, this is a sort of chronological look at your songwriting, and obviously we're here to to mention, firstly, uh, an evening with Glenn Matlock, and uh, you're basically going across the UK playing songs acoustically. I think this was originally done at Edinburgh Fringe a few years back, and I'm assuming the success of that has yeah, led you it, to it the was start. A, it was the summer before last. I did a week at the Edinburgh Festival. I could have done the whole month, actually, but I couldn't commit to it entirely when they asked me to do it because I had some other shows in the middle of that. But, yeah, I've been doing acoustic shows for years all around the world. Um, I kind of hung it on... I was a teenage sexist because I've got a book. You know, I can read from that mm. a little bit and then go off at a tangent. But I, I play songs from all aspects of my checkered career but I think there's some good songs there and um, they kind of all hung hang together because they're all from my brain box I suppose really yeah you know and they, all, every song I do started out on an acoustic guitar you know whether it's an acoustic guitar type song or a sax pistol song they all started on an acoustic guitar um, and they kind of work and some song some pistol songs mm. I could have a go at doing like problems well that sounds dreadful on an acoustic but you know some of the more better more songy ones work fine and uh, as i mentioned i I want to focus on your songwriting and and i guess when you play songs acoustically it really 
you know, it really sort of showcases the song. Well, that's what people tell me. People say they can hear the words better, and um, mm. yeah, and it's, it's a mood and an emotion. You know, I mean, the main reason I do it is, you know, when you write a song, you're sitting at home by yourself, or in your bedroom, mm. or in your living room, or whatever. You know, you might have a little idea in your head about something, but you've got a guitar with a new set of strings on. You've got a brand new pad and a new pen, and you know, and you have to create something. You don't have to, but you feel that you want to. And something comes together, you know, and then it becomes your baby and, and you do it. And then you've done that all by yourself at home or possibly co-written somebody else. But then, years later, you're travelling around the world and people pick up on it, you know, and they identify mm. with what you're doing. That's a real big buzz. You know, when you're doing an intimate mm. show, you can see the whites of people's eyes. And it, it's kind of something I crave, you know. It's, um, it's a drug in a way that you're appreciated and we all want to be appreciated in life. And, my chosen art form is, is um, writing songs, so if you can touch people somewhere. And I, only, I don't only do my stuff, I do stuff that's influenced me. I'm a big fan of Ray Davis, I like um, Scott Walker, I like Jacques Brel. You know, I do some songs from them, and there's some punk songs like um, uh, Blank Generation I, I might sling in. Mm. It all depends on the mood of the, the crowd, and I play it by air a little bit. So that gives you just the, the freedom to basically tailor what, what you play to the audience and what you feel at the time? Yeah, I mean, when you're playing with a band, you have to rehearse and you have to kind of know that everybody knows what they're doing and it's got a sort of a certain kind of running order. When I play by myself, I don't even write a set list out. I've got a rough idea of what I'm going to mm. do, but I size up the crowd and I, I can do practically any song from my long list of songs that suit the occasion or might put a spanner in works mm. on the occasion which is always a good to put a sideways twist on it but it's it's pretty immediate I like that you know the guitar you mm. know, roadies and bands and stuff you just turn up take your guitar out of the box check the tuning come your are and off you go it's very immediate and I like that mm. simplicity I picked a cross section of tracks I think about 10 uh, to play 10 on oh, the what pop- you got so right. I'm going to start very much at the beginning and uh, with Anarchy in the UK. And, and I've read that that really started off with your riff. Well, a bit more than that, you know. I think mm. the main construction of the song is mine. I do remember when it came out as a single, Caroline Coon was reviewing the singles and she called me up and how asked me how I would describe the intro. And I said that it was a fanfare, which it is kind of really and mm. it kind of owes quite a bit it doesn't sound anything like it but a vibe it's like the same tune to Sunday Night London played in my mind but our punk version of it you know and, and, and John had a set of lyrics but the, the, the tune he chose to sing totally follows the chord sequence that I came up with you know John always goes oh it's just chords well it ain't you know it's mm. chords uh, suggesting emotion and evocative of the feeling and it's the way you put them together that does that yeah, and it's one of those songs that kind of really sort of knocks you off your feet. It's you know, it's just an incredible sort of anthem to to many people. It's very close to their heart. Yeah, you know, but it's lots of things coming together in one kind of really cool package. And it's, hmm. you know, if that song came out now, or if it had come out in 1966, I I don't know whether it would have the same cachet and, and um, effect on people, but it does. It came out at that particular time with lots of shite going on in England and um, yeah it's like everything coming together at the same time there was a sort of trio of pistol singles that I'm kind of covering here before we move on to to the material after that great singles that you were really integral to to writing which are which are all anthems 
Um, so the, the Sex Pistols next came out with God Save the Queen. And again, you were absolutely central to, to, to writing that song. Yeah, um, well spotted. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, I was, and then that was it. Yeah, so again, my set of cool changes pretty much. And my wrists, it wouldn't be anything without the way Steve, Steve plays guitar and Paul plays drums. But, you know, when I was writing mm. the song on an acoustic guitar in my bedroom, I knew in my mind the way Stephen Paul would play it. That's it, really. Although, actually, the very, very initial idea of that, we had a stab at recording Anarchy with Dave Goodman in right. some studios in Nottingham. What are they called? I know the name. I can't think off the top of my head. And it was mm. like an abortive session. It didn't really work out. When I, there was a piano there, I can't really play the piano, but I was tinkering around on it, and I had that, and I drove everybody mayor playing it over and over, but then I went home and worked some calls out for it, and it all kind of worked, you know. I've read that it absolutely wasn't written for the Queen's Jubilee. No, not at all. I mean, originally the song was called No Future, and mm. we played it as No Future in 1976. Um, mm. I can't remember the very first time I played it. It wasn't one of the earliest songs, but it was called No Future. And then after I left the band, and I was talking to John about this, nobody knew, especially John, that it was the Queen's Jubilee, and somebody at the record company spotted that the first line was God Save the Queen. So the words were never changed, but they changed the title of the song. Mm. So, so it wasn't sort of Malcolm McLaren kind of see it with a glint in his eye thinking I can stir up a bit of interest here. Yeah, but do you know what? He might have spoken to the record company and they come up with between us, but that's what John told me, mm. you know. But, um, yeah. But it was always known as No Future. And to me, No Future means with what was going on in England at the time, there was mm. a real era of despondency. Um, you know, I always say this, but it's true. There's three-day week, there's people on strike, there's power cuts, mm. there's rubbish piled out in the streets. Um, I even remember going to Liverpool and we were doing a little gig up there at Eric's, I think, when our first excursion to out of town. And I picked up the local paper and they was seriously considering burying people at sea in the Mersey estuary because all the grave diggers were on strike. It mm. seemed like there was no future. There was a complete air of despondency. But we weren't delighted on that. We were, we was, I, I feel we were saying no future unless you do something about it for yourself. Yeah.
talked to a lot of artists from the 60s predominantly. Reading about you, you're a big sort of faces and small faces fan. I certainly am, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I was lucky enough to play with them a few years back. Did some kind of sort of reformation. Rod Stewart didn't do it, which was a drag. But Mick Huttle sang, and he's very good. Mm. He's a great blues mm. But there's Ronnie Wood and Kenny Jones, Ian McGlagan. And I was a bass player, and I was a band. I used to stand in front of the mirror when I was 14, sort of pretending I was in a band. And the last show I did them, he, did, he only did about, I don't know, eight or nine shows spread out. Um, but the last show was the headline of Fuji Festival in Japan in front of 50,000 people. So yes. I was chuffed, you know. And, and they're mm. such a laugh. They seem to have a laugh about everything all the time, always. And Ronnie Wood's a real enthusiast. Mm. One of the other shows we did with them, it occurred to somebody that the Small Faces song hadn't been played live by any of the Small Faces since 1968. So the encore, we worked up All or Nothing, which is quite an easy one to play, Tin mm. Soldier, which is quite tricky to get right. But we did it, and we got away with it, and we did it really well. I was then walking off the stage, Ronnie Wood said to me, he said, hey, Glenn, how about that? We played two Small Faces songs and got them right with two of the Small Faces. Fantastic. And he was like a kid. So he's a real enthusiast, lovely bloke. Great. My favourite guitarist is great. Yeah, uh, Tin Soldier is a really special song and it builds and builds and, and when it was recorded it was a real showcase of Steve Marriott's yeah. voice, of course. Yeah, Outlaw sang it pretty good. You know. I don't know if this is right, so you can certainly correct me. As well as there being a bit of an ABBA inspiration that Pretty Vacant was in, partially inspired by Small Faces. Is that correct or is it just a, a load no, of rubbish? No, song as you write. There, there, there is hmm. a slight element to that. And what happens when you write a song a bit? is sometimes you try and play another song because maybe you're not that accomplished you don't quite get it right and it soon goes off on a tangent and you've got something new right that's how I tend to write a little bit but you know there's possibly a bit of Wham Bam Thank You Man which is one of their B-sides but it's all sort of put together in my kind of way and lyrically it's coming from somewhere else and I'm proud of that song because I wrote the lyrics for it the only thing that changed was John changed two lines a bit later on. I mean, we used to rehearse and he would sing, mm. and we, I never heard a bloody word he was singing because the PA was so dreadful. Which I think mm. probably contributed to his vocal style a little bit. You know, he really had mm. to hammer it out to, be, to hear himself over me, Stephen Paul, in a tiny little room, turned up full, monkey banging away. Mm. So I didn't know he'd even change the lyrics for a while. <laughs>
I'd like to kind of talk about Rich Kids now, if, if that's okay, and, yeah, and play a, a, a trio of excellent tracks uh, from that group. Was it just uh, in terms of leaving the pistols, you'd you know had had enough of everything that was going around that and, and differences with bandmates? Is that the sort of thing that led up to that? There's a lot of that going on. I mean, I don't know if you picked this one out, but it's not a very good recording on the album, but um, there's a song mm. called Burning Sounds, and it was one of the first songs I wrote. And if you listen to the... The lyrics of that, it, you'll see where I was kind of coming from, basically. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I felt like I'd done a lot of work. I, don't, I think it was underappreciated. I thought John got a bit big for his boots once he got his face in the papers, and I think the other guy should have backed me up a bit more. But it didn't happen, and I think the whole Pistols thing had its own built-in shelf life. You can't change things like that, you know. Mm. You'd be pleased to know that Burning Sounds was, a, was one of the tracks picked out. That, that's Good sort of very, am, very amphemic. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was quite pleased. I, when I was getting the Rich Kids thing together, Rob Dickens, who was head of Warner Brothers Publishing at the time, he, he tracked me down. I was in all these little squats rehearsing, trying to get Rich Kids thing together. And he, somehow he'd managed to speak to a squat of three doors along to come and get me, to go and have a meeting with him. He paid for some demos, and I went and did a few things. And that was one of the songs. And he actually said it's one of the best songs he's ever heard. So I was quite pleased. Mm. It's great. Guitar part cool. I mean, it's not only my song, you know, the beginning was Steve News, you know, and that set me off thinking. <laughs>
never really co-written with people, but somebody mm. like Speed knew he would come up with ideas and then I'd incorporate his idea into the song and then cut them in on the publishing and, and stuff. And that's what happened with that one. That's what happened with Ghost Princes and Towers. So I, I think all my songs are about something. They're not necessarily about, you know, heavy duty political things, but they're not mm. sort of peace and love or I love you baby mm. kind of songs either. And then talking of that, because you did mention that the, the track is that the, the second song by the Rich Kids I wanted to play was the title track of the album Ghosts of Princes and Towers. Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what what was the sort of genesis of, of that song? Well, that one was um, before Midge was in. Midge was going to be in the band, and he wasn't, and he was, and he mm. wasn't. And I got a bit fed up with it for a while. I thought, I'll just go and do some shows. And Mick Jones always got on with. He came and did some shows with us just to make up the numbers, and he's pretty kind of cool kind of guy. But we played at this club called The Vortex, which is just up from um, the 100 Club, or was. Mm. And... Um, we was trying to be a bit different. Mick has always thought of himself as Keith Richards. So any chance he had, he's let his hair grow out a bit. I want, mm. wanted to be different from function during my hair out a bit. We had sort of flouncy shirts on. And somebody from a fanzine wrote a review and said they came on stage looking like the ghosts of the princes in Sowers. And I didn't quite mm. know what that meant. But I'd been reading, and still do read, Jean Cocteau, you know, Les, Les mm. Enfants Terribles. And um, I got a few ideas from that. The whole Richfield idea comes from that. And also, mm. the ghost of Prince, it all kind of added up in my mind somehow. It's all to do with being part of a forward looking gang. Mm. You know, and there was a lot of violence starting to happen at gigs. And I didn't particularly see why to be forward looking. You had to go around staving people's heads in. Mm. And so that's all that bit about the soft boys and that bit there now. It's all rolled in there somehow. But when you write a song, you. You try and write something that's kind of more evocative than a literal thing, as though you were just writing a newspaper article or a book mm. or a poem or something. It's different, you know. You're like using the music together with the words to create a mood, so it's less literal and more emotional. That's what I think. But I think I've got a particularly conversational way of writing as well. Maybe mm. if you're talking to somebody, mm. hopefully that's what I try and. Never made And it's fascinating 
favourite one was the B-side of the single of Ghost Princes is Only Arsenic. I think that's one of my best songs. Not the best recording, again, it was somewhere we knocked out as a B-side really quickly. And I wrote mm. it in the band going there. But we'd had a mauling by Paul Morley for some gig that we'd done. And it's kind of about the two-facedness of rock journalists at the time. I don't hear them talking their lives away, but never really find them that much to say. Bad look behind, cause bad is so despised. Yet you see it flashing in their eyes. And they're all so calm, and they're all so cool, and the last thing they think their ears is bound, nobody's fool. There's only poison, only ask behind all you say, and all you do. It's about people who kind of spend their life knocking things, but never really put anything forward themselves. I've got Midger's um, autobiography. I was kind of reading that the record company built you guys up, um, he was talking about, but then because of that, when when the journalists came to to your shows, sometimes they were, you know, they weren't favourable, which was completely unfair given, you know, the great music you were making. Well, I'm trying to think that, but then I would say that, but I think possibly, Mm. I think, I mean, it was welcome with Mick Ronson. I remember quite clearly Mick Ronson saying, perhaps you haven't got an album, perhaps we've only got half an album. You know, and perhaps you should wait a little bit and write some more songs. And I know he wanted us to do a cover of By These People Have Been Working With Them, which I wish we'd done, actually. There's a great song called Interviews by the Alpha Band. And the Alpha Band were guys um, who were backing Bob Dylan up up on stage. If you ever get to mm-hmm. hear it, it's the most fantastic song. He kept playing it to us, and we should have done that. And maybe we should have written some more songs... Um, you know, like ghosts and stuff, but the record company wanted their money back by putting the record out and we just hustled mm. in, into doing that. You know, plus we kind of went along with it because we wanted our time in the sun, but I think possibly looking back, hindsight's a glorious thing, but we should have waited a little bit. But I do think we were a bit ahead of our time. You know, not a real groundbreaking way, but, you know, but when we mm. got the gigs, the only records we listened in listened to were those four records that Bowie made, you know, Low, Heroes, um, mm. Lost for Life, and The Idiot. They were big influences on us, plus we've been working at Ransom, and perhaps we should have waited a bit more. You know, and another thing that was a bit of a bone of contention, and it was funny, we played a show know, two months ago now with a rich kids mm. for a laugh more than anything else, double edit with the professionals, um, Gary Kemp played, but Midge wouldn't do Young Girls because he thinks it's a soppy song. But back then, he was insisting mm. that we did it. You know, and I think it's a great tune. It's a good pop song, but lyrically, mm. it's a bit sort of naive. So it's funny that after all these years, he won't do it, you know.
Obviously, Midge is a, a great songwriter and an artist in his own right. Obviously, and I guess was it that his sound and kind of where that he was he was wanting to head at the time kind of led to the, the rich kids sort of splitting. Yeah, it did basically. They, him and Rusty went and become new romantics, and they kind of started it with Steve Strange, really. Mm. Um, and I wanted to rock out more, you know, but have an element of that in it. Um, and it yeah. kind of broke the band up. 
really. Plus, we had a real backlash against us. You know, and I remember after that, you know, when the Rexes broke up, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I did some demos for, for EMI at the time, Chris Briggs, it was the A&R guy. Um, and back then, I wasn't hip to the fact that maybe you could pick the key you singing a bit better. I always sung a bit too high. You know, you write a song at home on a guitar, and you sort of sing it in your head. You don't really sing it out properly. And then you go to a rehearsal room and do it, and you can't really hear yourself because everybody's playing for bloody loud. And then you go and do a demo of it and record it, or, or just go and record it, and you record all the backing tracks, and then you open the mouth to sing it, and you've got a small budget, and when you sing it, it's in the wrong bloody key, you know. <laughs> um, mm. so I wasn't hip to that then, and I, I don't think I sang that well mainly because of that, and I spent a lot of time, you know, now you can record at home for next to nothing once you bought the stuff. Mm. You can really play around with the keys, and I've got a pretty limited range, and I think I seem pretty good within that, but I wasn't hip to that then. So, I, maybe I wanted to take over the kids and be the singer, um, but it didn't work out that way. So I was sitting at home thinking, what am I going to do? Wouldn't it be great mm. if the phone rang? I'm not kidding you, two minutes later the phone rang, and this bloke said, is Glenn Matlock there? And I said, yes. And I said, oh, yeah, and he said, oh, my name's Peter Davis, you don't know me, but I manage Iggy Pop, Iggy Pop, and Jim, James Osterberg, is here, and he'd mm. like to have a word with you, so I had a word with wow. He was in town, and basically they'd made that album New Values, um, I was going on tour, the guy who played bass on the album was going to play second guitar on the tour, and Jackie Clark, and um, they were short of a bass player, was I interested? So I went and had a drink with Jim, we got on really well, next thing we're on tour, tour around Europe. With, mm. with Iggy, you know, sort of meeting Bowie and doing all that. But we played in Paris, and Malcolm McLaren turned up to a meal after the gig that um, they played at Le Palace, and um, mm. there was a record company meal afterwards, and Malcolm McLaren turned up, and I didn't really want him to be there, but he just sort of tagged along anyway. But then I'd had a drink, and he was talking afterwards a bit, and he said, well, where you went wrong with the rich kids was it, it was kind of cool to in London to kind of move on a bit so quite quickly he said but as soon as you went out of London went up north no disrespect this is what Malcolm said but kids who are only just getting into punk thought yeah. you were taken away from them which they'd only just got into and I hadn't really seen it that way now that was quite a good point really but you just have to do what you have to do really. yeah from his autobiography it does seem like that in some of the description of his, his gigs um, I think he described one in the the northeast. I think where it was, they were quite. Well, he, he major ended up in outpatients at, at, in Newcastle once at, at Mayfair Ballroom. They were throwing glasses and stuff, and they, he made the mistake mm. of having a go at them. And of course, they did it all the more. But it was mm. dangerous, you know. We got a glass at him on the thing. But we was lucky because. A week later, I think it was Generation X or somebody else, and there was a little balcony above the stage, and nobody was supposed to be behind it. Some fuckers got a big table and carefully positioned it and then dropped it on the drummer. Gosh. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and in fact, Midge, we, we actually did some demos for a second album, which never came out, although they mm. did come out on some little thing that Creation put out. And he wrote mm. a song called Animals. <laughs> You mentioned playing with Iggy Pop, but you also um, wrote wrote songs in, in that period. And um, 
hopefully this is a song you like. Um, you wrote a song called Ambition yeah, for, for Iggy? Yeah, it's one of my favourite songs. Um, yeah, and he does it. I don't think he does the best version, because after it was recorded, I kind of realised it should be in 6-8, which is like a blues kind of tempo, you know. Mm. And I will do that at the show. Um, and he also he changed it, the lyrics, from the third person to the first person. So instead mm. of singing She's the Kind of Girl, he changed it to I'm the Kind of Girl, which I thought was mocking the song a little bit. But, you know, it's cool. I'm, he's never rarely done anybody else's lyric, mm. unless it's a cover of Louie Louie or A Bo Diddley or something.
we did some co-writing on the album. But mm. it was mainly, I'd have a tune and I'd give it to him and he'd come up with some lyrics. Yeah. There was a song that um, ended up as Take Care of Me, which mm. I really liked the lyrics on, but the original lyric I had was Forget Me Not. Just, you know, like Paul McCartney writing yesterday, originally his lyric was supposed to be Scrambled Egg. And he said, mm. oh, I like that. I said, no, you've got to change, you can't call it fucking, you know, it's fucking flower, you know. But it's got to have that number of syllables in the thing. Very common. Mm. I, in fact, I like that. Yeah. International garbage man. I've decided that's what I am. I need somebody to pull me out. And he was living in Berlin at the time. Mm. I'm sinking like crazy in my sauerkraut. Take care of me, take care of me. Somebody should. Hell, I'm pretty good. <laughs> the buzz burner.
Kevin and Wayne, mm. I'd like, I wish I'd kept playing the reggae a bit more, but I didn't because I was approached by a guy called Charles Leveson at Arista, who's saying, what you're doing? I said, well, I'm playing with Iggy, you know I'm playing with Iggy. You're the bloke who mm. put the money up for record. He said, yeah, but you must be doing something else. And I started getting the Spectres together, which we was going to sign to Arista, but it just all went a bit tits up, really. But uh, we had a few good songs with it. You had a, kind of a bit of a renaissance in, in the mid-90s and you, you signed with Creation. I, I, there's a song that I really, really like from Who's He Think He Is When He's At Home and It's A Different World. That's a great song. Right, yeah, OK, if you like that one, that's good. Yeah, mm. um, yeah, I'll probably do that one live. Yeah, I think you certainly do need a different world these days with all the shit that's going on. Generally being a bit pissed off and, you know, I did have quite a fallow period in the so late 80s, early 90s and then I bumped into Alan McGee at a creation gig. You know, they banned the creation. Yeah. They named the label after that. And I got introduced to him by Tony Barber, who was playing bass in the Buzzcocks then. And he said, do you want to do what are you doing? And I've been putting some demos down. And he said, well, we'll do a record with it. That's what happened. But that was in 95, and that album was supposed to come out really early 96, long before right. there was any talk of the Sex Pistols touring. And it mm. kind of got put back and put back, and then it coincided with the Pistols tour. And it looked like I was cashing in, but it never was. It was done in '95, you know. Mm. Um, so it came and said, oh, I think there's some good songs on that album. Um, mm. Story of Your Life's one of my favourite ones. And it's the like, little more ballady one. I always try and put a ballad on an album. Yeah. My Little Philistine, it's kind of cool. Hot Water, it's not a bad song. Yeah. So I was kind of getting back into writing again and sort of finding my voice yeah. a bit. Sort of finding your sound and where you you know want to be, finding your voice again. Yeah, and it's funny, you know, when I do what I do, you know, people know if you're a pistol thing, you can't depart from that too much because then people mm. think you're letting them down, but you want to move on. You got to, it's, a, it's a line that we straddle somehow. <laughs> Yeah. 
before I talk about the next song, um, in, in terms of doing some of the, the Pistols stuff, you know, acoustically, this it feels there's a, a little bit of a sort of more rockabilly feel to well, things. Well, there is, it's you know, like, when we did the Filthy Luca tour, we rehearsed in Los Angeles because John and Steve lived there, the management were there. It's no real shame to be in California mm. in February or February, March. You know, when it's cold over here. So we mm. all went there to rehearse, and I bumped into Slim Jim Phantom. In fact, I went to see, with Chris Thomas, um, we went to see Pulp. It was quite a big venue, like a club, but a big club. Mm. And it turned out it was run by Slim Jim and his mate. And I used to be mates at Slim Jim in London when the Stray Cats first came over. We had the mm. same, when I was doing the Spectres, we had the same publicist. All the publicists worked that same office. And I'd lost touch with him, and then we got reacquainted, so... I been in touch with them over the years just as mates and then a bit of playing come up with something and then we did that dead men walking thing together and yeah we just get on he comes to london i put him up if i go over there he puts me up and we mm. just did some recording and he's you know i like now i like music that swings a bit it's just mm. a different groove to it and it fits in with my acoustic guitar strumming well i'd met him before i'd done a little thing with clem burke and sky keen and dufty and Al Slick, um, and we got on fire, and I said, well, look, I've got all these songs. This is maybe about three years ago, now would we up with you doing something? Who could we get in? And I didn't know, but he knew Al really well. And he said, well, why don't we get Al in? So we've actually got an album in the can, which I finished about a year and a half ago, and I'm going to get that out probably early next year now. And in fact, uh, if you go on YouTube, we did a, just for a laugh, we did a version of... Um, Happy by Pharrell Williams, which would come out. Ah. It's like a rockabilly version, but it also sounds a bit like the pretty thing about it. Well, I, they're oh, mine. Yeah? yeah, I know Phil May. You listen to him from me. And Dick Taylor. And um, I opt him out at a gig at Dave Gilmore's house, believe it or not. That's wow. a long time ago now. But I like, yeah, I like the pretty thing. In fact, we played with the pretty things with the pistols once at the Lyceum. Oh, did you? Who's on the bill, uh, yeah. That was really early on. Ah, well, yeah, I, I, they've been on this show before, and, and obviously they're, they're absolutely mar- marvelous group. Well, well, why don't we play it? Let, let's play. Uh, let's play happy. Yeah, play happy. It might seem crazy what I'm gonna say. Sunshine, she's here. We can take a break.
last of the solo tracks I wanted to play is Born Running. I mean, again, you know, looking back to, to the Pistols and to the Rich Kids and, you know, in your solo material, you do kind of have a lot of sort of anthemic songs and this is another one. Yeah, well, glad you dig it. Yeah, it's um, good. Again, there's a video of that. I don't know if you've seen that. That's probably up on mm. YouTube somewhere. Yeah, I like that song. I'm quite pleased with that because mainly the band on that is just me and the drummer, which was um, Javier Whaler, who was in the Aerophonics, and it was produced mm. by Jim Lowe, who gigs with me. He's a mate of mine. He plays bass as well, and he did a little bit of the more funny-sounding guitars on that. But I, I think it's a good record. I'm proud of it, and it's just so hard, you know, when you're in a certain pigeonhole. I think mm. if Grand Day had come out with that record, they would have been number one everywhere. Mm. You know? That's what I'm, he would say that. But yeah, glad you picked up on that one.
I don't know if you you want this to be your last track, but I, I know it's something that that's really current, and uh, I mean I, I really like the version of it, and um, you've done like a, a new version of Problems with Zach Starkey. You could buy um, that, yeah. I, you yeah. Know, I, got, I got a quote from Steve Jones, and you know what his quote was, which one they're actually going to mm. use? That's the worst bloody version I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it, it rocks. Yeah. It does. It rocks. I don't, I don't, and it works with the female vocalist. The mix is great, to be honest, you know. Right. Um, and that, that was like a kind of a, a charity record thing that Zach's done. But Zach plays guitar. He's a really good guitarist. But the whole idea of this album that he's done was to play their favourite songs with the original rhythm sections. And it was quite funny because he asked me to do it. And I said, well, I'm up for doing it. And Zach used to be a neighbour. Mm. Um, and he said, well, Paul do it. And I said, well, I'll ask him. And Paul said yes because I'd said yes. So we did those couple of tracks. And then he wanted to do a Small Faces song. So we got Kenny Jones down. And Kenny Jones actually gave Zach his first drum lessons. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's kind of not my world, but it's sort of that big kind of stadium mm. rockers kind of world. Uh, but they didn't have a bass player. So he called me up and said, would you do it? And I said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. I like playing with Kenny. And then they wanted to do a Pretender song. So I got Martin Chambers to do it. But I didn't have a bass player. So he said, would you do it? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and then they went to do a Mock the Hoople track, and now they didn't have a bass player or a drummer, even though Martin Chambers had actually played with Mock the Hoople in more recent years because their drummer mm. had Alzheimer's, of course. So, uh, yeah. Nothing with drummer. So Martin did that. So I did that with Martin, and I got Mick Ralph down to play guitar on it. So it was a real fun kind of thing. The album's just come out, it's for Teenage Cancer Trust, and then we did a show, I don't know, about a month ago at Raymond Review Bar. Paul played drums, and it was good playing with Paul and doing stuff that wasn't mm. just pistol stuff. Zach's old man came down, we met, you know, Ringo, he was the yeah. last, we had a right last of him. And then on Sunday I'm playing in New York, and I'm doing the same show, but Paul can't do it because he hasn't got his work permit sorted, so Clem Burke's mm. going to do it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So you're all over that album, basically. Yeah, but they've recorded lots of songs. You know, the guys mm. from the Ruts have okay. done some reggae stuff. I think he was actually, or he's about to do a show. I mean, he's touring with the Who, but mm. when, wherever he is in the world, he tries to set up a show because he's already there. And I think they've done like a reggae version of what I did before and what I'm going to do with Clam. And he's got maybe mm. some of the guys from the Whalers or Sly and Robbie or somebody like that, you know. Yeah, so it's a movable feast. Oh, I'm going to be really busy. I'm doing that, and I come back. I've got one night off, and then I'm going to be a guest singer with Evan Seventeen and the British Electric Foundation. I've got two. Oh, yeah. So I've got kind of like nine or ten gigs with everywhere in the country. And then I'll finish that, and I'll start my solo tour. So, busy boy. But there's never that and much on the tally. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so before we play Problems, um, I think the... the an evening with Glenn Matlock uh, UK tour starts on the 1st of November and then there's a range of dates across the country. I think it ends up uh, in Glasgow a couple of weeks later. Yeah, although there's actually been a couple of shows added. I've got one in Dublin and mm-hmm. another one somewhere north of Glasgow. And then um, I did a thing in Berlin a couple of weeks back and I've asked me to go over there. And, uh, and just like playing, you know, if, you don't, if you're a, mm-hmm. a musician and you don't play, you're full of shit. <laughs> now, thank you so much for your time, Glenn. It really is appreciated. Yeah, no, good uh, question. It's a good choice of song. Thank you. Thank you for your time. No,